The following episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is chock full of spoilers for House of X, Powers of Ten, and current X-Book continuity as of November 2019. Listen at your own risk. And thank you for tuning in to ZZ105, featuring ten straight hours of atonal humming in Krakoan. So, Jay, House of X. And Powers of Ten! It's a lot of X. Uh, and ten. It really is. I'm not even sure where to start. Ooh, probably with Mara McTaggart. She's a mutant. She's an immortal mutant. Well, sort of immortal. Right. She repeats the same life over and over with the knowledge of all of her previous repetitions, but if she dies before manifesting, it's all over, so not technically immortal. And she's on life ten. Well, in the present at least. Right, because there's the future stuff. And there's the far future stuff. And the really far future stuff. And the phalanx. Right, which turns out to be... what was it exactly? Honestly, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around that. Fortunately, we've got a guest expert this week, Chris Edelman of the Chris's on Infinite Earths, who's been annotating the hell out of House of X and Powers of Ten over at Xavier Files and Polygon. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Jay and Miles. Hey, Chris. So, Chris, we're coming fresh off the Phalanx Covenant, and we thought it would be cool to start by talking about how the Phalanx ties into House of X and Powers of Ten and all that. Well, we learned fairly early on that the Phalanx, or in this case possibly a Phalanx, is a large collection of machine intelligences working in tandem on a pretty vast scale, in the service of an even greater intelligence that exists in a network of singularities. And they're attacking Earth? Not exactly. Earth sent the Phalanx a message in the form of a world mind, a planet-sized intelligence that isn't quite as impressive as the Phalanx, but still pretty neat. To warn them away? To attempt to prove themselves as an acceptable suitor, to join the Phalanx Collective. Call it a cosmic neon sign. That sounds... iffy. I'd say so. It involves the Phalanx consuming their collective intelligence, and while they're at it, the rest of the Earth. Why would anyone want to do that? It beats the alternative. What? What? I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 274 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to an incredibly dense story that we're going to attempt to cover in an hour. And to help us do so, welcome to you, Chris Edelman. It's great to have you here. Hi, I'm really thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me on. Now, if you didn't somehow catch the warning before the cold open, we're going to be talking about current X-Books, which means this episode is chock full of spoilers. Assume that anything that was out as of, uh, when are we recording this? It's what, like November 11th-ish? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, as, as anything that was out as of roughly November 11th is fair game on this episode. We'll be going back to the normal format next week, so if you don't want to be spoiled, maybe skip this one and listen to some Tighten Up the Defense. To further add to that disclaimer, like, seriously, House of X and Powers of Ten are a mystery story that is all about the pacing and the reveal. So if that's something you care about at all, 
you're going to be far better served reading those comics before you listen to this episode. But if you've already read it, or if you don't care, welcome. Also, they're a multi-series Jonathan Hickman mystery story, which means they are unbelievably narratively, factually, and chronologically dense. We've got about an hour. So please understand that while we're going to try to give you the highlights, discuss what we think are the most salient points, etc., we're not even going to come close to touching on everything that's happened on the pages so far. If you want that, we would recommend that you check out the annotations that Chris and a couple other folks have been writing. You can find those at Xavier Files and Polygon, and we will link to them in the visual companion to this episode. So, Chris, Jay and I both read your annotations, and they're pretty great. What was your goal in writing those? What were you trying to get across, aside from just pulling out the various details that were referenced within the series? Yeah, why would anyone want to explain X-Men minutiae? <laughs> well, um, I uh, am a biologist by by trade, and I knew from some of the teasers that I felt like some biology slash genetics was going to be involved with this. And thought, oh man, this this sounds like something that's really up my alley because um, I I feel like I pretend to be really knowledgeable about X Men, but um, yeah, maybe not maybe not quite as uh, as quite as smart in X Men as as I come across. But I do really know biology and genetics. But I knew that there would maybe I, I didn't know if I could do it by myself. And meanwhile, my my co writer uh, Robert Secundus kind of separately came up with the idea to do the uh some annotations um our editor uh zach jenkins saw that we were both talking about this and said hey i want to host this for you and edit it um especially since he knows way more about x-men than even the two of us combined but we thought uh because robert has a a background in religion and classic literature that kind of between the two of us we could probably get almost almost any sort of reference that was not x-men that this this um double mini series would have to offer. So we really kind of wanted to dig into that because we knew it would be inspired by more than just comics. And it very much seems to be, I mean, we talk about X-Men as a, a superhero soap opera. This is almost like a science fiction, quasi religious philosophical soap opera within house of X and powers of 10. Yeah. We're, we're getting into like wasteland territory in terms of the density of, of, illusions in this text. Um, the one thing I'm wondering, Chris, is, is you've, you, the two of you have, have biology, you've got um, literature and theology wrapped up. What about linguistics and IT? Because those are the, those are the two big ones that I kind of latched in on when I was looking at this and, and wished I'd known more about. Um, yeah, unfortunately, the two of us aren't, weren't the most well-versed. I tried to look up some linguistics stuff because I knew it would be interesting. Um, a, a funny little story. There's this, this bit later on where um, Doug uh, Cypher talks about fricatives. And I'm, I, I'm such a newbie. I was like, what is a fricative? And in the process of looking it up, learned um, a specific fricative that is unique. Well, it's not unique to Welsh, but it is in Welsh that is not in English. Um, that, that's about the, the extent of, of my linguistics knowledge. And as far as IT, uh, that's completely above my head. But um, there was quite a bit of kind of coding uh, in in this in the, this double miniseries. I, I always I always wonder what to call this if it's one series, two miniseries, a giant maxi series. But there there does seem to have been quite a bit of inspiration in terms of where where all this, especially in terms of where 
um, information for the the graphics came from. And I think all of the above is is fair game. Legit. And well, with all of that to talk about, Jay, like you said, we've gotten about an hour. So where do we dive in first? I mean, I, I feel like we should start with just the broad concept. What on earth is the elevator pitch for House of X and Powers of Ten? Well, uh, it's funny because at at it's very basic. If you just look at House of X and you have the the really quick, like first few issues elevator pitch, it doesn't sound as unique where it's mutants have their own homeland. And then, you know, us longtime X-Men fans go, okay, but they, but yeah, that's happened before, but it's this combination of mutants have their own homeland. They have the perfect leverage to ensure that it stays intact, at least as, as far as we're aware. Um, and they can't die anymore. <laughs> well, I'd question that third one, and we've got a lot of questions about the the sort of the gritty parts of that. My my elevator pitch for this is Doug Ramsey is real relevant, <laughs> incredibly <laughs> relevant. Yeah, so so they get a homeland, but this homeland is really different from any that they've had previously. Um, they're they're on Krakoa. Krakoa is sentient. It's it's a sentient island but it's one with which specifically by the time the series starts doug has established a pretty distinct rapport and has been able to some extent to allow charles xavier to program and charles xavier is taking a very different role in this series than he ever has before because he's not really following the capital d dream the way we're used to krakoa is a mutant separatist nation and the intention is for all mutants to count that as a homeland, for mutants to basically stop trying to assimilate at all. For me, that's the biggest status quo shift in House of X and Powers of Ten is that, you know, mutants were previously, the X-Men were previously sworn to protect a world that hates and fears them, and that's kind of not what the line is about at this point. No, now they're just sort of existing in a world that hates and fears them. Uh, A lot of people like liked while this was while this is coming out to sort of claim the X-Men as an antagonist now toward the rest of the earth when instead I feel like they're more more just asserting themselves in a not a not a pacifistic way but maybe not an antagonistic way either but they're they are making themselves completely relevant on the world stage in a way where they are completely unignorable but completely apart from the rest of the world. And apart as well, in a way, from the reader. That was one of the things that first struck me in House of X number one right away. Like, we have this confusing, cold, creepy scene of a masked Charles Xavier reaching down to these naked people coming out of eggs, and he's reaching down like a messiah saying, to me, my X-Men. And the next thing we see is a bunch of human diplomats talking about what to do about the Krakoa thing. It's almost like this comic is excluding us as readers because we're not mutants. We're not part of Krakoa. And there is this element of like, are these the bad guys anymore? These are the characters I used to identify with. And this book isn't letting me identify with them anymore. I love that. It's really one of the things that it does is effectively lean mutants away from being a metaphor and make them into their own idea. One of the things Magneto mentions very early on is they had to make their own language because they needed a language to develop their own distinct culture. And 
that removes them from what they were, from the language of, you know, from, from the languages that, that humans on Earth speak, but also to a great extent from the common semiotic language of superhero teams and superhero comics that we as readers are used to. So yeah, that's the House of X side of the premise, but this is two series. It's two series where the issues go from one to the next and one to the next. Well, okay, they reverse at one point, but whatever. The other half is Powers of Ten, and in Powers of Ten, we get four different timelines. We get Year Zero, when Xavier basically started thinking about this whole how to interact with the world as a mutant thing. Year Ten, which is the present day. Year 100, uh, you know, 90 years in the future. And Year 1,990 years in the future. And they're all very different, and they all sort of interact. And that's part of where the mystery comes in, is figuring out how they interact. Yeah, apparently... um when Jonathan Hickman was coming up with his pitch, it started with powers of 10 and the house of X was kind of added on later um, where he originally wanted to do this sequence of mutant history. And um, also in case people are purists, while it says like zero year, 10 year, 100 year, 1000 year, uh, those are a little flexible. Um, Like not everything is happening in X to the power of zero in one year. So if people are worried about that, it is, it's a little bit more up in the air than, than you think, but um, powers of 10, it, uh, it, it definitely takes on more of a sci-fi hook than your house of X, uh, which seems a little bit more of a political present day sort of book. There is some Arthur C. Clarke stuff happening in powers of 10. There's some Isaac Asimov, uh, especially in the, well, pretty much exclusively in the future uh, sections. It is, you think that you would have seen a lot of X-Men dark futures, but these are pretty unique and out there. Yeah, these are these are weird and they go in weird directions. They're very they're very Hickman to what extent Hickman as a style of interacting with Marvel continuity was established in Everything Burns. Right. <laughs> like they've got the same intricacy and they've got the same not exactly weirdness, but the same very, very structured and very, very alien cosmic organization and scope. Well, and talking about scope, man, the level that these series just utterly rewrite everything that X-Men has always been. I mean, there are a couple things in particular, but I feel like we have to just dive right into the whole Moira McTaggart thing. Because for me, that is the revelation that makes this series as mind-blowing as it is, or at least the one that does so first of the many revelations that do that. Right. It starts in uh, the first, the first quote unquote red issue house of X number two, which we, we, we were, we kind of insinuated early on that the highlighted red issues in the back of the book and the reading order were kind of where stuff goes down or where a very important revelation happens. And boy, did we start off with a big one? The first revelation being Moira McTaggart has a mutant is a mutant has always been a mutant. And that her mutant power is to live the same life over and over again. I say the same, meaning she starts back at her at her same birth, her same exact year and day of birth, and lives a completely new life over and over again. Uh, and at the end of this series, she is on life 10. But in House of X number two, we get sort of the details of, well, at that point, most of her lives through the rest of the series, all of her lives. And... It's an exploration of how Moira 
tries to keep mutant kind alive over and over again. And it's this huge cycle of attempting something new and ultimately failing over her lifetime of she's, she ends up living something like at least a thousand years by the end of it. And coming back to, to the 10th timeline, which from what we understand is um, the earth, earth six, one, six, as we know it and doing what she calls breaking all the rules, which in this case is kind of letting, or as it seems like is letting everybody or at least more people in on her plan, as well as sort of doing some completely off the wall stuff. Now this has massive implications rippling back through the entirety of X-Men continuity. In addition to being something that, that Moira and Xavier for the lifespan of the X-Men have both known and have, have been concealing from most of the other characters in that universe. But also, I mean, Moira was the major human figure in early X-Men and she was the first human as far as we knew until this to die of the legacy virus. Right. That, it does really change quite a bit when you go back and look at some of the the storylines that Moira was involved in. When Moira was taking care of a baby Magneto, this was after she had revealed to an adult Magneto her entire plan and the, the previous nine lives that she lived. When she was going to get the legacy virus, it was also all part of her plan. A lot of things seem like it were that it has been retconned to all be part of her plan, kind of for better or for ill in in some cases, but it really just made me want to go back and read everything with Moira in it again. And that's been really interesting for us because as uh, House and Powers were coming out, we're at the part of continuity in the 90s where Moira gets the legacy virus. And she and Xavier have all these one-on-one conversations that nobody's listening in, listening in on where they're talking about how she's a human and the legacy virus is going to kill her. And unless they were worried the room was bugged every time and were pretending she was human for the benefit of whoever might be listening, like – that is just a straight-up continuity contradiction. But I also know that we have a series called Moira X coming out soon that's going to explain some of this. So given how House and Powers just seem to be paying attention to every little detail, I'm going to assume that's all going to factor in. For right now, it is baffling. Well, we've got we've got a writer who's very, very clearly very aware of how much he's breaking and how. So my main my main feeling coming into that is is a lot of curiosity as to how exactly it's going to go and how it's going to play. But you mentioned characters with plans, and I think to get into the powers of ten, especially, we've got to talk about Mister Sinister. Absolutely. So, Mister Sinister, in terms of the the X to X squared um, section, which is the the hundred years later, he had built a. Um, he had built a library of mutant DNA with the specific purpose of breeding or creating soldiers to fight the, the humans who in the future are allied with um, advanced thinking machines. In this case, um, sort of the breakout villain Nimrod, as well as uh, Karima, the Omega Sentinel. Um, but he had these four generations of mutants, which kind of got increasingly genetically complicated as time went on. And the fourth group ended up massively betraying 
the mutants, which seemed to be all part of Sinister's plan. When he, then he was promptly executed by the humans and the mutants. And then that's kind of all we get of future Sinister is just in a few graphs. And I find that completely fascinating. And I'm 100% sure it's somehow going to come up again. But in the present, he's kind of doing the same thing. Um, we get a, a scene of, of X to the power of zero or the or year one where uh, Magneto and Charles go and find him at Bar Sinister, which is a, kind of yet another retcon. As far as I know, the concept of many Sinisters kind of existing simultaneously, that's a, that's pretty recent, correct? Yeah, that's Gellin. Right. So I, except uh, I, now it's apparently always been that way. Um, well, he's he's always he's always been really really into clones, and he's always had decoy bodies. So it's the kind of it's the kind of retcon that that fits very easily. That's saying, oh yeah, he'd been working on this for a long time before he turned it on in in San Francisco. Works just fine. What I'm more interested in is how he got involved in Krakoa and the specific revelation that went with that. Because that I really didn't see coming. Oh, right. You know how we all thought that uh, Mr. Sinister was was not a mutant. Uh, and uh, in some ways, some of them aren't. Um, but when Magneto and Charles come to to ask the, the collective Sinisters uh, to assist them, uh, and by ask, I mean, you know, they're kind of they're they, they're kind of making a little bit of demands about it to gather a library of all of the mutant DNA, much as was done in this, this X to the power of two timeline. Um, and for, for, for the purpose of, as we eventually learn to just have a backup copy of every single person's DNA. And while one sinister completely does not want to do this, he said he, he refuses. He is promptly killed by another sinister who mugs to, to us, the reader, saying, hi, I'm the sinister with the mutant gene. And we find out that that mutant gene was taken from John Proudstar. Right. Thunderbird, the X-Man who lasted for like an issue and a half. And okay, so one of the things I really love about this part right here, we get a lot of text pieces in House and Powers, just a lot of like pages that are just text, no images. And one of those is a list of rumors from Bar Sinister. Um, and, and the little computer code around the edge just says lies, lies, lies. But they all are intriguing and fascinating. And one of them is, and I quote, he's trying to pretend that no one noticed he was wearing red shoes. But this truly sinister sinister isn't fooling anyone. And I had no idea what the hell that meant. But a co-worker of mine named Jeff, for some bizarre reason, remembered that in Uncanny X-Men number 95, Thunderbird, when he goes and tries to punch Count Nefarious plane to death and then ends up blowing himself up, there's a coloring error where just as he jumps onto the plane, his boots turn red. And that's like on the same page where we learn that Sinister has Thunderbird's DNA. And what the hell? Is this just like a, a, a total red herring of a rumor? Is it just Sinister being campy and messing with us or Hickman messing with us? Or does that tie in? And I love it. I love that there's so many things in these series that you just don't know, especially involving Sinister. Oh, all the Sinister secrets are tantalizing and some are completely baffling. We get a hint that there might be a fourth Summers brother in one of those uh, Sinister secrets. We get hints about maybe Madeline Pryor coming back or at least the concept of Inferno coming back. It It's 
It's a lot. Uh, and we, if it doesn't come true, of course, we can just chalk it up to sinister telling tales. But if it does, then we've had a hint of it this entire time. And the fact that it's it can either, it's kind of and the fact that it is either a can happen or can't happen makes it, I think, all the more interesting. <laughs> so we talked about you talked about Sinister's hand in the the X squared timeline in the year 100. What's going on there? Because we we've got we've got we've got X Men, but they're and they're they're familiar, but they're not the X Men we know. No, so in that timeline, the main organization on Earth is called the Machine Human Ascendancy, and it seems to be a cooperation between humans and machines. But as we read a little bit more, it really seems like the machines are kind of more so in charge and are paying lip service to the idea that they and the humans are considered equal. Um, These machines seem to be led by Nimrod, uh, who is slightly different personality wise, but this is, this is at least the same sort of look as the, the Nimrod that we've seen before while being expressly a different a different Nimrod. So he doesn't have any memories of the 616 or anything. But he is working along with Omega Sentinel, um, so Karima, who we also end up seeing in the, the present timeline. I'm sorry, I feel like I keep going off on these, but they're also very interconnected. The X-Men of this timeline are living on an asteroid, which is called Asteroid K, the K being for Krakoa, but I think we're supposed to get some hints of Asteroid M just in the naming scheme. And they are the sole resistance to this this human machine ascendancy on Earth. So the ones that we that we have here, they're led by Apocalypse, which is kind of a big reveal after a few issues. Um, Wolverine is a member of this. I I was absolutely positively certain this was a clone of Wolverine, but it is the genuine article. Um, um so Laura. <laughs> I'm sorry. So this is, I don't even know if he's Wolverine in this. I think he might've just been called James Howlett, which is also, I'm not, not fond of that either. Um, So Logan, the, the, the male Wolverine uh, that we, that we know is um, uh, one of the only pure, pure blood members as they, they say in the, in, in the graphs. Uh, Zorn is a member of this team. We also have Krakoa as a member of this team fused with Doug. So at some point, Doug fused with Krakoa to sort of make a small ent creature. Um, We then have uh, North. North is um, a second generation chimera who has the powers of Lorna Dane and Emma Frost. But he kind of looks like a green Magneto um, for the most part. But our two main characters for this timeline are Rasputin, who and Rasputin and Cardinal, who are fourth generation sinister chimeras, which means they have five mutant genes put inside of them. Cardinal is an example of the failure rate of the sinister cloning program, where he is a complete pacifist and is biologically incapable of fighting, whereas Rasputin is a complete powerhouse. Uh, for me, she was kind of the breakout hero in this entire double miniseries. There is a scene of her fighting where she is absolutely clearing house and it is completely perfect. And 
as far as how they look, Rasputin kind of looks a little bit like if Ilyana and Colossus were kind of like combined together. Rasputin has long dark hair and Colossus is bioorganic steel and also a soul sword, which is not touched upon. I really wanted that to be touched upon because that's not a mutant power. <laughs> One of the details I love about that is we don't know if it's actually a soul sword or if it's something if if it's if it's another kind of weapon that's made in in visual homage to the soul sword. Right. These one way or the other it is completely up in the air. We, meanwhile, um Cardinal kind of looks like a red nightcrawler. Not and a lot of people had a lot of speculations about who that was early on, but he he is his own person, that's just the way he looks. But the this group in the future is trying to steal an index from the human mutant ascendancy because they need the index to figure out when Nimrod comes about because in as the big reveal of this timeline is it's actually Moira's ninth life. Moira is the final mutant uh, um, who lives on asteroid K. So after this huge um, suicide mission battle, Wolverine is the only one who makes it back gives Moira the index and Moira kind of between the two of them agree that she has to die to reset the timeline. So Wolverine kills her, but then it means that in life X, she now has all of the knowledge of when a Nimrod will come about, which gives them sort of an edge because while this is going on in the present, the humans have figured out, that mutant kind is going to supplant them and they've prepared countermeasures of their own. And I love the way the story is told here. I love the fact that these future timelines, initially, we don't know if they're like the inevitable future of the current timeline or if they are just separate versions of Moira's various repeating lives where she keeps her memories from each life. It's this unfolding mystery that every little thing you learn about it just adds more and more stakes to Life 10, which is to say Earth 616, the comics we've been reading, because we realize like... Moira has tried nine times where she remembers each of her previous lives to make the world okay for mutants, and every single version has failed. She's teamed up with Apocalypse, she's teamed up with Magneto, she's tried to, quote, cure the mutant gene, and, like, nothing has worked. And so this is kind of all we have, the present-day Marvel Universe, which, of course, we as readers are also attached to. I love it. Well, and she's running on borrowed time because in one of her early lives, one in which she figured that that the mutant gene was basically a curse and what she needed to do to help mutants was to cure it, she was killed by the Brotherhood of Mutants. She was specifically killed by Mystique and Destiny. And Destiny, being Destiny, had some very specific insights into exactly what Mora was and how her powers worked, specifically that she could see some futures for Mora, but... No more than about 10 or 11. So Mara is running out of time. Right. And Destiny put her on this path kind of in a threat, but also in a you need to keep you need to keep in mind your own people. You need to help your own people sort of way. But she says, hey, if you ever try this again, I'm older than you and I will know and I can keep killing you as many times as it takes. Yeah, this series really adds a lot to Moira McTaggart as a character. And I think she's a character that's kind of gotten the raw end of the deal a lot in X-Men. Like, she's fascinating, but she gets offed like a chump. She 
is always secondary to Charles Xavier, and Deadly Genesis almost ruins her as much as it does him. And finally, we have almost redemption for the character, and I think it kind of does that for Destiny as well. Destiny's a character that never got nearly her due, and here, she is just such a potent, powerful figure. She kind of is the inciting incident uh, in some ways of, of Moira's entire deal. And she gets kind of one of my favorite scenes in the, in the entire series where she is, where she's just explaining the deal to Moira. It's, it's, it kind of contrasts some of her past appearances of being a sage, but sort of quiet figure who never seemed to kind of get the spotlight. And, that's one thing that the series does pretty well, uh, and not just for Destiny and Moira, but a lot of characters get sort of a distilled, hey, this is this is them, Spotlight. Cyclops gets a few of these. There's some really great Magneto moments. And it's they're always for these very short, just quick hits of absolutely that is that character. Yeah, very much. Hickman seems to have voices for a lot of characters just down. Not necessarily all of them, as I'm sure we'll we'll get to later, but, like, his Magneto is maybe my favorite Magneto. I know that's a big statement, but the series is fresh in my mind. Well, and it's impossible to tell at this point which characters who seem out of character are out of character for narrative reasons versus because of a writer not quite getting the version of the voice that we at least identify before uh, we we get too many too much in the weeds, um, we should probably talk about Moira's sixth life, which is the reveal, which is the reveal of the X to the power of three, or the one thousand years later timeline, in which a lot of that timeline seems like a kind of what's going to happen with the phalanx coming to Earth, and the entire time we are kind of nudged into believing that this group of blue people are what's remaining of the mutants on earth and that they've put human beings in zoos. It never explicitly says that, but it's, it's so nudges your perception into that, that when there's the big reveal later that the, that the blue folks are actually a post-human species, meaning a genetically and technology, technologically enhanced group of homo sapiens and that mutants are the ones being kept in zoos. It is completely mind blowing. So this group of post-humans has petitioned for the phalanx, which, as we said in the cold open, is has been retconned to sort of be this incredibly vast machine intelligence that also sort of works as a messenger for an even vaster intelligence that hangs out in the center of black holes and this group of, of humans, which in, in this timeline is called um, Homo Novissima, wants to join up with the phalanx. but And the phalanx eventually agrees, but with the caveat that Earth's going to be eaten. And this individual, the librarian, goes to the zoo where it is revealed that Wolverine and Moira are still alive and that they've had the same blood type. So it's assumed that Wolverine's just been giving Moira blood to keep her alive this entire time, I guess. But he is having some second thoughts about whether or not he wants to be absorbed into a machine intelligence, which I feel like is, is fair. Um, and 
he wants to bring Moira and Wolverine, uh, this is Logan Wolverine, off planet because if they get killed, the timeline resets. And he wants to take the knowledge that he has of Moira's repeating lives with him to this singularity-based intelligence because then it would be be beyond space-time and mutants would literally never, ever, ever be able to stop humans because he and this the rest of this intelligence would know because they would be omniscient. However, in either his hubris or a moment of doubt, Wolverine manages to kill him, just like gores him through a tree and then does the same thing that he did in Lifetime 9 with Moira, which is kill her to send her back with the information that hopelessly humans always seem to win because they are not beholden to evolution. They kind of take command of their own evolution by using genetic engineering and technological engineering. And that's one of my favorite concepts here. Like if Grant Morrison's X-Men was all about what it is to evolve about mutants as the next stage in in, uh, in evolution that's going to just supplant everybody else like the humans are always worried about, this turns that around. This is like, no, mutants evolve, but humans can go beyond that. It, give, it gives this new vast antagonist for all of the X-Books, for all of the mutant characters, which is technologically transcended humans. And – I, I love that. I love that it's not like, oh, we're homo superior. We're just awesome in every way. It's like, oh, no, there's this big thing that we can't really be bigger than. We can't be better than. And so, like, the fact that Moira learns this in life six, and that's just one of the things that she's trying to fix. She's trying to find a way to prevent. Like, it just adds to the level of just, just the scale of what mutants are up against, the impossibility of them being able to succeed in any way. So I have a question, and this is something that that I've been thinking about pretty much since I started reading this. Does the existence, nature, and politics of the human machine ascendancy make anyone else wonder where danger has been in this? Uh, Yeah, I think that is completely fair. Um, and I, I'm, I'm positive. It's not like someone forgot the danger existed. I kept reading this series, wondering if some era was going to be forgotten and it, nope. It seems like everything, everything is slotting into this one way or the other. What I'm thinking about specifically is the point during the danger arc of astonishing X-Men where Cyclops goes off on Xavier about the idea that Xavier is effectively doing to sentient AI what humans were trying to do to mutants. Right. It, you, you almost wonder if there's some, some bit of revenge that is, that is baked into this ascendancy um, based on, based on all of this, especially if, if danger were to be involved. I think that, that there's, there's possibilities of that in the future. There's, this is uh the series is more of a Chekhov's arsenal rather than just kind of a single single Chekhov's gun <laughs> where I feel like so much can come up in the future. Yeah, Chekhov's intricate continuity. <laughs> Correct. So we've been spending all this time in other timelines and out in space, but I feel like as the episode's progressing, we need to bring it back to Earth, back to Krakoa, and back to the other really big status quo shift after the Moira thing, which is 
mutant resurrection. Let's talk about that. Well, for starts, everyone is alive again, at least initially. All the mutant characters you know who've died, they're back. Right. It's, it is, for storyline purposes, if they are necessary, they are back. Um, and this this big reveal happened after um, a small group of s- some of our favorite X-Men were sent to the sun, um, where the human beings were attempting to sort of bring about a Nimrod again, whereas they had an incredibly Pyrrhic victory where they defeated the the mother mold, which was the the robotic precursor to Nimrod by uh, chucking it into the sun, but at the expense of all of their lives. And then it is revealed that there is a group of mutants who synergistically can resurrect any mutant that's a has stored DNA, which is where sinister came in and B has a stored well, this is this part's complicated. A stored anima, a stored psyche, a stored essence in Cerebro. That is another one of our big retcons is that Cerebro not only tracks mutants, but also stores all of their, again, psyches, souls, whatever you want to call it, and constantly backs it up. Now, the five in this case are, oh, let me remember this. The five are Hope Summers. Proteus, Elixir, Gold Balls, and Tempest. We l- the one of my favorite reveals in this is that we learn that Gold Balls doesn't shoot gold balls; he shoots gold eggs. I know, I love it. He was always one of my favorites, and now he's getting his moment to shine as like this messianic figure on Krakoa, and I could not be happier. It's fantastic. So the eggs that he shoots are made viable using Proteus's reality warping powers injected with the mutant's DNA to make sort of a viable sort of proto-mutant. Then Elixir uses his abilities to sort of shape it into a human form. Then time is sped up to bring them up to age. Then they um, they hatch after Hope Summer's sort of is o- almost overseeing all of it. She's sort of the the synergy that makes it possible, whereas just the four without her wouldn't be able to do it. Then after they hatch, Charles Xavier puts their psyche back in them, almost like a like a system restore on your windows. Using his exceptionally fancy new hat. It, um don't you know that uh, Cerebro Wired is um, is out of date and we are going wireless Cerebros from now until eternity? <laughs> yup. And I, I kind of love this. Like initially I was like, wait, this means that no stories have stakes anymore if death doesn't matter. But then I remembered we're reading superhero comics. Death never really mattered. It kind of reminds me of I think it was the 2013 Prince of Persia game where every time you died, it would just rewind you a few seconds <laughs> yes. to the last like checkpoint. And people were mad, but a lot of people, other people said, hey, this is just what it's been doing before in video games. It just makes it quicker. So that kind of works for me. And I think there are still stakes too, honestly, because think about it. You know, those X-Men that went to fight the mother mold, you know, yeah, they were they were restored after that. But everything they learned and remembered since their last backup was gone, which to me is existentially terrifying. Like, are you even you if you don't have your most recent memories? It's that whole thing where sometimes I can't get to, to sleep because I wonder if when I wake up, it'll be a different me and I'll actually be dead. Like, it's it's kind of philosophically horrific. 
This is what happens when you double major in philosophy and psychology, kids. I It was half a minor in philosophy, to be fair. Right. Maybe if I got the whole minor, but, I'd be less scared. But seriously, with the resurrections, the other thing that goes with that is that at least with Krakoa and in terms of how he's interacted with it and what we've seen, and I mean with his behavior in general, Xavier is not someone who's ever been shy about tweaking a few neurons if he thinks that they should be aligned differently. And having him as the sole backup system and the sole conscience of that backup system seems fraught with all sorts of peril. Right. And just that this this uh, new resurrection process brings about so many possibilities for sort of mistakes. Uh, for example, if they while it is addressed, it specifically addresses it in a, the, the concept of maybe resurrecting someone who's still alive. So there's now two of them. Uh, I, I'm 100 percent sure that's going to happen at some point. Uh, it, well, and I think we all remember Paper Jam Cyclops. <laughs> oh, man. But I, I agree with you. It is Charles has an awful lot of power in this new society. Not 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 just the fact that he sort of is like a, at least a co-founder. The ability to kind of have everybody's souls seems kind of a lot, I guess. It it is a lot, and it's it also has weird implications within the Marvel universe too, as as a number of people have pointed out. We've seen the existence of an afterlife in the Marvel universe. Are are they just are X Men just piling up there, <laughs> right? Or, or like are they being pulled out of heaven or something? Because there heaven definitely exists in X Men. I Kurt has been there. Yeah, is he just yeah. coming back well, every time? Charles Xavier has been there. That's true. <laughs> That's the really mind-blowing part to all of this. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, yeah, uh, who knows if we will find out one way or the other. It it does prevent, outside of the text, I guess, a bit of lazy storytelling um, or possibly non-compelling storytelling where we can't just have a character die as part of a story and that be the stakes. We're, you know, we've, we, we have to sort of accustom ourselves to hopefully a better, better class of stakes than just X-Men deaths in the future. With that, I think it's probably time to segue to listener questions. And some of these we've, we've covered in the course of conversation. Some of them we haven't. Um, there are a few that specifically relate to the nature of resurrection that are interesting and that are sort of in the I don't know, we'll talk about it, we'll explore it, rule of cool space that I feel like we don't really need to dig into, like why Cyclops still needs his visor when he comes back, which I assume sort of falls under the same general general set of rules as why Wolverine regenerates the same haircut. Or even has adamantium for that matter. Oh yeah, that's a really good point. It's like the whole a wizard did it argument, but now it's Krakoa did it. <laughs> There's reality warpers, it's fine. Some of those questions, though, are more specific. Queer Buzzkill asks on Tumblr, Given that Xavier, with great support from the Five, is capable of transferring the mind of a person into a new body, what are the implications of using this as a plot mechanic to facilitate trans inclusion? This is, of course, working under the assumption that there must have been some reason in continuity that trans people don't exist in these stories. Wow. So, man... I, I, I feel kind of bad that my response to someone who's already got the name Queer Buzzkill is that my answer is probably going to be even more depressing. But I gotta say, 
I don't want there to be a continuity reason that trans people weren't there. I want Marvel to acknowledge the actual reason that there haven't been trans people in those stories and to fix it. They can do that. That's what retcons are for. And in terms of that happening, that's not something that I see happening within the lifespan of this story arc, at least. It would be really, really nice if it did. Um, But this is a place where I feel like it's really, really important that the actual reason for that lack of conclusion be acknowledged and owned outside of the narrative and the narrative adjusted accordingly. That said, in a hypothetical X line that did actually include textual transness, this would have fascinating implications. Fair, yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry, that that probably wasn't the, the happiest direction to go with it. But it, it's interesting, and it, it, it raises a lot of questions like the ones we brought up, you know, about Cyclops' powers, about Wolverine, about any character whose who's body could not be replicated exactly from from genetics because it's in any way been modified because of injuries because of um any modifications because of corrective surgeries things like that like how how that works with the egg system is isn't explored and hopefully it will be but i'm not sure well uh jay we do have a hint that there is going to be at least a mini series coming up that is specifically going to be dealing with resurrection now it wasn't this was um in a in a, a jonathan hickman interview i'm not sure if this means resurrection as, as a history of x-men or in this specific new context but maybe things like that could are going to be explored further um and i really hope that they are because there there are just an awful lot of implications of growing someone from DNA and an age. Our next question is actually a trio of questions. Jay Coggins' essay asks on Tumblr, Hoxpox introduced a huge retcon to the life of Maura McTaggart, and I have three questions that stem from it. One, with Maura now a mutant, who is the most significant human ally of the mutant cause? Two, other than her contraction of the legacy virus, are there any moments of her history that could be read as accidental foreshadowing? And three, what are your favorite moments when where later retcons in the X-Line are accidentally foreshadowed. Oh man, that's a lot. Uh, Okay, so question one, current most significant human allies of mutants. It's an interesting question because mutants are so specifically separating themselves from humanity, but I would say without the long-thought-dead Moira McTaggart, because yes, this series does explain why she did not, in fact, die back in the 90s, um, I would go with Dr. Kavita Rao. She was on X-Club for a long time. She's done a lot of work with mutants, especially in the scientific direction. And she was close enough to Beast that I assume she would still be able to work with mutants, even if she wasn't allowed on Krakoa very often. Do either of you have any suggestions? Um, I'm going to just really be silly here. Uh, because I'm on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, I think that they one of their most significant human allies, uh, at least in terms of history, is super Dr. Astronaut Peter Corbell. Oh, yeah. Like, I know Krakoa won't let humans in without a mutant escort. I feel like the one exception is Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo, because Krakoa knows. He's just cool. He's, he's you know, he's he's your buddy that nobody knows. And you go, he's cool. And he just is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's the guy who, when you walk up to the club that you have a membership with, puts his arm around your shoulder and says, they're with me. And somehow you get to go to the VIP section. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, second question about uh, moments of Moira's history that could be read as accidental foreshadowing. 
aside from her contracting the legacy virus, well, there's the fact that she fought the legacy virus as hard as she did. Because think about it. If this is her last chance to have things be okay for mutants, the legacy virus would have been such a significant threat to everything she had died nine times for. I mean, not that her first couple deaths were relevant to that, but still. And she would know its relevance to things like the upcoming phalanx stuff and be able to use it as a means to fake her death and throw people off the scent of her being a mutant. Right. I'm wondering about some birth or the birth of Proteus and Legion has some sort of more uncomfortable um, connotations now that at some point it's revealed that the two of them were specifically looking to try to create a reality warping mutant and they were both trying to do this by finding people that they could have children with. Ugh. Yeah, that's, that's especially considering the way that those two kids grew up. That's got some really alarming context. It it's, that's like the, that's the bit where I kind of realized that they were going to let Moira be as morally dubious as Charles and Magneto always seem to get to be. She, it does not always make the greatest decisions. And I think some, some things like this and deadly Genesis are definitely taking on some new, some new context. One thing Magneto does very specifically and Xavier at some point too, during, during house of X and as they're establishing Krakoa is frame the X-Men as gods. And I think Moira in this context is a very, very good example of kind of the perils of that, that she's someone whose perspective by by the time she hits her her 10th life is so distant and so long game that a lot of the details and humanity of her individual choices are pretty much below notice for her. Oh, right. She's, she's kind of taken on a new and very difficult to understand morality if you are someone who lives a linear human life. And as far as the third part of the question, uh, our favorite moments where later retcons in the X-Line are accidentally foreshadowed, we have limited time, and I feel like that's a little bit outside the scope of what we're covering in this episode, but I'll just go ahead and say Cameron Hodge. I, I love the way that's handled with him. Yeah, everything about Cameron Hodge. My favorites of all of those are ones that aren't even accidental foreshadowing. They're things that are retroactively made into foreshadowing because someone saw them and realized there could be a story hook in them. Totally. Just the fact that there is a, a being called the Phoenix and they were people were wondering if, they, if uh, Jean Grey was going to come back, that was just built in by name. Um, Asimov Fangirl asks, Hi everyone, since Krakoa seems to be a self-sufficient society slash nation, which jobs slash crafts slash trades do you think would become obsolete there? Which ones become more valuable or useful there? Or is this a nation where utilitarian value is unimportant and Krakoa gives opportunities to its citizens to pursue their passions or project? Sorry if this is a weird question. I hope you all are having a lovely time. Asimov Fangirl, I am having a lovely time and I, I hope Jay and Miles are as well. <laughs> Very much so. Me too. And so somewhere in, in one of Mari's incarnations, there's a timeline where I answer this question with a really long and protracted spiel about Fritjof Bergman and new work, but this is not that timeline. That's JM cubed. This is like JM squared. Or something. Now, um, my answer to this, I think jobs in, on Krakoa are in a lot of ways a logical extension of the current labor model in the United States, where jobs have been shifting for the last 50 or so years from physical to mental labor. 
There would be jobs on Krakoa. There are jobs on Krakoa. We've seen them, but most of them relate to interfacing symbiotically with Krakoa itself in positions and roles based on a mix of powers and personal expertise. I would also assume that childcare is going to be con- to continue to be a thing for the foreseeable future, considering that Krakoa doesn't seem to really interact with its with its residents as a, as as a sentience. Um, and one of one of the official commandments of 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 the mutant nation is make more mutants. One of the things I like most about Krakoa as a concept going forward, because, you know, make no mistake, this is the status quo for a long time, at least, I assume, is that we have some mutants like, say, Cypher or Black Tom, but specifically using his plant powers or Mondo, you know, who didn't necessarily have the most the most combatty powers in that regard. And we're getting to see mutant culture, what it would be like. Like, this is something that you and I have talked about a ton, Jay, is getting to see what mutants are like when they don't have to be superheroes, and I love it. I'm so happy that Mondo's back, by the way. I love Mondo. He also is a very good boy in the one appearance that we have. He's just excellent. Um, that would that would have been in the the recently released New Mutants number one. And I'm happy he's there too. Um, I think to some extent people are kind of allowed to pursue their passions. I just think there's a lot of space for people or for mutants to pursue things that are also useful because a lot of them have incredibly useful passions, probably because they were in a superhero comic book at some point. Um, But it does seem a little bit like a nice egalitarian paradise. There's certain things that Krakoa seems to automate, such as like doing the dishes. It it has a goo squirter that everybody in their homes get that dissolves organic material. I love it. It kind of reminds me of in the Flintstones, you have a little dinosaur or bird to do everything for you. And on Krakoa, it's just plant goo, just various types <laughs> of plant goo. It's pretty great. That actually brings us very organically to our final question from someone whose name I am going to guess is pronounced Dime Store Tagic, um, who wants to know, how much or how little do you want to eat Krakoan food? I love trying new food. Um, so I, I, that, that, that's even like a thing that I'm well known for. There's probably a few listeners who are nodding their heads. I would try Krakoan food. Let's do it. I, it seems all very, very plant-based and of lots of bright colors. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, uh, did you guys remember that movie Hook, the Robin Williams, Peter Pan, like movie from back in the 90s with Rufio? I sure do. Of course. Yeah, so it kind of reminds me of the food the Lost Boys eat there, those brightly colored globules that as a child I just imagined had to taste just bizarrely perfect and have unique textures. Like, Krakoa in general is just so aesthetically pleasing, and I feel like the food is the epitome of that. On Krakoa, Tide Pods are edible and delicious. <laughs> the line of the show. So I, I would love to try Krakoan food, but based on, on personal history and my general sense of, of the universe's sense of dramatic irony, I am fairly certain that I would be allergic to most of it. Oh, no. I feel like Krakoa would have some kind of a specialized plant goo that you could just like take as a tincture every day and it would just fix that for you. Or Xavier could just, you know, next time you got resurrected, take care of it. I realize we're about to close out. I just realized there's something we've got to touch on or we're going to get 10,000 emails about it. And I don't know about you, but I don't have the time to read all of those messages. Yes, Cyclops and Jean Grey and Wolverine all have interconnected bedrooms. Presumably they're all sleeping together. 
And I'm pretty sure Scott and Emma have a thing going on as well. And I never thought I would see a day where polyamory was a thing canonically in X-Men. And you know, 2019 may suck in a lot of ways, but at least there's that. You know, I'm pretty sure Gene and Emma have something going on too. No, yeah, that's uh, not unlikely either. So I feel like we could talk about House of X and Powers of Ten for about 12 more episodes and not run out of things to talk about. So I'll just say, listeners, if you've read it, keep talking about it. It's fascinating. Pick up the new books. They're all really good so far. And if you haven't read it and um, you're okay with having had it all spoiled for you, it's so good. I honestly haven't been this excited to be an X-Men fan since Grant Morrison's run. I love what's going on here. I'm not saying it's always the most pleasant thing. It's creepy and like unapproachable in some ways, but in ways that are fascinating. Like what a freaking time to enjoy these mutants. It's fun feeling at sea to the extent that I have read and and still do reading this series. When you've been following a specific line of superhero comics for a really, really long time and and have a you know second career going into its minutiae, that's a rare state to achieve. And it's a rare it's an even rarer state to achieve as a result of competent design rather than incompetent accidents. So it it's 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 definitely a pleasure to to get to kind of wallow in that right now. It's been a lot of fun to talk about in as a community, I think, as well. A lot of times talking about comics, to some extent, feels a little painful, um, especially kind of mediocre or bad comics. But while this was coming out, it was really fun to speculate and everybody notice uh, connections or hints that other people hadn't noticed. And it was a delight, and I just hope it continues on. And Chris, thank you so much for joining us to help us uh, to help us unpack just, you know, the the very surface bits of House and Powers. Yeah, you talked about X community online, and I feel like you are definitely one of the beating hearts of that community. So where can folks who are interested in hearing you talk more about comics or reading what you've written um, find you on the Internet? You can find me, um, I'm mostly just active on Twitter, at Strictly Worse, which is a Magic the Gathering joke, uh, which, uh, yep. Um, you can also find uh, the podcast that I co-host with my wife, Christina. Um, we're on Twitter at Chris's Pod. You can also find us in probably any podcatcher you want. Um, my work is, the X-Men related stuff is mostly on Xavier Files, where the first few um uh, Hawkspox Talks annotations are hosted, uh, and the now ongoing Docs Talks, where we have gone from just Rob and Zach and I to an incredibly gifted and fantastic group of people who are going to be covering in slightly less detail, but with tons more personality, every single one of these books as the weeks go by. So please check us all out on there. Um, but the... Other uh, annotations are hosted on polygon.com where, uh, so you can uh, find us there. They specifically have a spot for Hawkspox coverage where our annotations and a bunch of other articles are located. So you should be able to find that there. And we'll link to all of those in the visual companion. Thank you again so much, Chris, for coming on the show and for lending us your Hawkspox expertise. Um, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, truly, thank you for having me on. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced, as always, by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual and companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the X-teams catch their breath post-phalanx. With friends old and new, plenty of packing tape, and a whole lot of property damage. (laughs) 